Most recently, we learned of a 16-year-old child that's been in an orphanage for almost 10 years. They found the birth mother and some friends of ours started helping them to try and get their 16-year-old child back. But the government didn't allow them to because of damage in their home. We found out that there was a problem with their roof. When we get that fixed, they can have themselves assessed by our government. And assuming they pass, this 16-year-old will now belong back to his family. It would have been a lot cheaper if somebody just fixed their roof than put the kid in an orphanage for almost 10 years. Real estate space, utilities, food, plus all the trauma, right? Welcome to the MindShift podcast. I'm Krish Kandaya. Around the world, there are around 5.4 million children in orphanages. Each year, millions of pounds and dollars are sent to support orphanages and thousands of people volunteer or visit them. The best evidence shows that orphanages are not good for children and there are far better ways for vulnerable children to be cared for. A mind shift is needed and that's why this podcast exists. You're in for a double treat in this episode because we're going to be meeting Rabi de Lazuriaga, who's the president of Philippines Without Orphans, and Anton Putlin, who is the working group leader of Kyrgyzstan Without Orphans. And in these two countries, there's thousands of children in institutions unnecessarily. And these two men are making a huge impact in bringing change. Sometimes we think that the answer to the solution of the world's problems is to send more Westerners to go and solve them for us. And actually, here are two local men who feel passionately it's on their shoulders, it's on their watch that child welfare reform needs to take place. And so there's lots to learn about a grassroots approach to bringing change. They come with such energy and passion. There's lots to learn from both of them. We're going to be talking about family-based care and maybe a way to kind of begin to think about that is if you would be so kind to give me a memory from your childhood. Why don't we start with you, Anton? That's a tough one. I mean, I was, um, my parents were pretty busy. So I think the best memories we would have is like summer vacation time. So going to a lake together and like spending some time there at the beach and swimming, buying food, just being there and like walking back and forth with parents. It was already awesome. That's right. It's funny. A lot of my photographs of my family are taken on family holidays because we're all together and we're just spending time. Two things I think as you say that, one is that children in institutional care sometimes are allowed to go home during vacations. So I've heard of children going home for Christmas or for some time in the summer. And for me, A, that's strange to think that obviously these are not orphan children if they can go and go home during the summer vacations or during the winter. And second, the dissonance that must give a child in terms of attachment, that they're not allowed to be home most of the time, but in holiday homes they can be. So are they wanted or not wanted? Are my parents actually able to care for me or are they not? That must be very traumatic. So it's funny, isn't it? We all value the time that we do get to spend with our families in the holidays, but it must be particularly bittersweet for children who live in institutional care. How about you, Robbie? What's a childhood experience that you can share with us? I actually grew up in a very stable family where my parents always had a good marriage. And some of my best memories are my dad chasing me around the table, (laughs) not because he was angry, but because... 
because we were having fun. He liked to tickle me and give me hugs, and and I'd always run because I didn't want to get tickled by my gigantic <laughs> father. So yeah, I had fun memories of that. <laughs> I was talking to a young woman who grew up in an orphanage, and touch was something that she particularly missed and felt she wanted to be held. She wanted to be tickled, and in one sense, rightly, people that run institutions are more mindful now about child protection. So that's good. But children without the opportunity for rough and tumble fun with a trusted adult a father or a mother again they miss something in their kind of development and it is precious to us when it happens in an appropriate way and so give us a bit of a picture about what care looks like in Kurdistan right now well Kyrgyzstan have this a bit of like a Soviet legacy you know when uh, you would take any group that was kind of like potential troublemakers right it put them somewhere the further the better and lock them down and just let them sit there and like you would look after them and maybe you know like you feed them of course you give shelter but then that's it and majority of kids to say the numbers is like 13,000 kids living in institutions are not actually like all of them are orphans mm-hmm. so like more than 90% are kids who have families but then the families cannot provide for them and the government is spending about $200 a month for a kid in an institution mm-hmm. but if a mother applies for help they will pay her maybe 10 bucks for a kid. And that's such a false economy, isn't it? Why wouldn't you be supporting a child to be with their parents? Because we know from research that all the issues that happen to children if they stay in institutional care, they're likely to age out, they're going to find it more difficult to integrate into society, they're going to have mental health problems, more likely to be criminalised, and that costs the government more money. So even from just an economic basis, that's a really silly logic. But it pains a lot of people to think that children are away from their families because of poverty. In the history of the kind of Soviet care system, why were most children in orphanages? Because one of the benefits of the Soviet era, at least, would have been the idea that there would be a sharing of the financial blessings into a country, and so less division between the rich and the poor. Was that an illusion? Well, I think one of the benefits for the government was actually that if kids are in the institution, it's the state who is raising the kids, right? It's the state who is building their mentality. Mm. It's the state who investing into their worldview. And so you have these perfect citizens afterwards. Mm. And during the Soviet times, there was kind of integration work. So they would graduate from an orphanage and they would be the members of the society more successfully than now. But still, they would be like in a way brainwashed, you know, like the worldview was coming from an orphanage that was state run. Mm. And then in terms of like food and provision, well there are different opinions about that and there were different times in the Soviet Union as well so there were times when there was like tremendous shortages, especially after the war and so big amount of orphans, less food to feed them and it's it was, it was tough sometimes. So help me understand this, so during the Soviet times, children were in orphanages they were genuine orphans, both parents were dead, all their aunties and uncles gone, there was no one in a family that could care for them it wasn't poverty that was driving children into orphanages or was it a deliver- punishment? Were children taken away from their parents to be indoctrinated because their parents might have been deemed unacceptable to the state? Was it that way around? I've heard of orphanages in the Ukraine, for example, where it tended to be children with disabilities or learning difficulties were taken away from parents because they were deemed unable to be brought up by the parents and shipped away. Because I'm interested in the history. I know today it's different because different factors maybe drive, but the system was set up during communism 
So what were the drivers initially for kids to be in orphanages? Well, I think I would say like almost all of the above, but mostly yes. Like after the wartime, there was many orphans who were just orphans because their parents died or they were misplaced and they couldn't find them and stuff like that. But then later on and before the war as well, yes, you're right. There were many people who were deemed as like enemies of the state. So they would be sent somewhere in the camps, somewhere in Siberia, and then their kids would end up in the orphanage. And again, as I said before, the thinking behind this was that the state then will be raising them into like what they deemed to be like normal citizens. Very interesting. Now, I imagine the situation is very different in the Philippines and I'm interested in the contrast because some people think there is a magic bullet Mm. that if we just do something the same everywhere, you know, if there's a kind of McDonald's franchise in terms of caring for vulnerable children, we can just export that globally. But we've heard some of the motivations and reasons and systems that are in place in Kyrgyzstan. What about in the Philippines? What are the reasons why children are in orphanages there? And do you know roughly how many? Yeah, so roughly, I'll address the question of how many there are. We don't have the exact numbers, but we do have a forecast from UNICEF. And they say it's 5 to 10% of our children's population, meaning 0 to 18, which brings us to 2.5 to 5 million. But UNICEF's definition alone is just for those who have lost at least one parent. Now, to give you an idea, in our capital alone, we have 17 cities. And in one of those cities, we have 1.8 million children in the streets. And they are not technically defined as orphans Mm. because they're defined as street children. And then there are several other definitions of what's abandoned, what's neglected. So if you add all of that, it's really several million. And in the West, we've seen a lot of pictures of children picking rubbish off of the rubbish tips, Mm. trying to get aluminium or other recyclable material to earn a living. Is that still a reality? It is still a reality, but it's in concentrated areas. Now, in the last 10 years that I've been doing this, the major cause in the beginning when I started off was more related to poverty. Now, unfortunately, the reason for orphanhood is more on along the lines of alcohol, sexual abuse and drugs. Yeah. And the children have had to be taken away. So there seems to be a couple of things there. So one is that the street children are on the streets, sometimes because of abandonment or neglect. Mm. Are some of those street children going home at night after spending time on the streets or are they living and sleeping on the streets the whole time? They do live and sleep on the streets along with their parents. Some of them are able to go home, but it's also their parents that send them out to go and beg. So that's a poverty factor. But then you're saying some children have been removed from their parents because of sexual abuse and violence and neglect. Where do those children get put by the state? They get put in orphanages very quickly. There are government-run orphanages and there are also privately-run orphanages. And do you know the breakdown? Are like most of the orphanages in the Philippines run by the government or most of them run by separate entities? Most are run by churches, actually. Christian organizations. Now, what you'd find interesting, Krish, what I discovered was that the cost of putting one child in an orphanage from the age of around 2 to 18 is more expensive than getting 24 children adopted in the Philippines. Wow. Crazy, crazy, crazy. So there's very different factors here. This is a really good contrast, actually, because in post-Soviet countries, the state seems to be running the system, whether well or not, the state is running the system. So if you can engage the state, you can see great change. I've seen that happen in places like China, where there's been huge amounts of working with the government. And once the government decides something, things happen because there's more control. While in somewhere like Uganda, it seems more like the Philippines, where most of the orphanages are run independently, often by churches. Mm -hmm. Some of them register their children, some of them don't. Don't. Some of them have great policies, some of them don't. So it's 
it's a bit like the Wild West and everyone's kind of doing their own thing. So again, the idea that the solution that's going to work in Kyrgyzstan is going to be the right solution to work in the Philippines is really unlikely. But I'd love to know what you're doing. You know, what's what's your strategy? What are you trying to do? And where are you seeing some encouraging progress? Do you want to go first, Robbie? We've really broken down our efforts into two different portions. Number one, there has to be prevention because majority of the issues that we're facing, over 90% can be prevented. But most of the pain and damage we're experiencing is on the fixing, the curing side. So we also have initiatives for that. So I'll start off with the more painful part. We really, as much as possible, we try to put children back into their families when possible. If, let's say, the perpetrators or the main issues are not with the parents. Like most recently, we learned of a 16-year-old child that's been in an orphanage for almost 10 years. And... They found the birth mother and her other children, and some friends of ours started helping them to try and get their 16-year-old child back. But the government didn't allow them to because of damage in their home. So we assessed it, and we found out that there was a problem with their roof. So now we're getting it fixed. And when we get that fixed, they can have themselves assessed by our government. And assuming they pass, this 16-year-old will now belong back to his family. And I'm guessing the amount of money to fix the roof was not a great deal of money, but it makes a huge impact to that family and this child's life will be radically different. Yeah, it's just a couple of cups of Starbucks, you know what I mean? (laughs) And it fixes your problem, right? It would have been a lot cheaper if somebody just fixed their roof than put the kid in an orphanage for almost 10 years. Real estate space, utilities, food, and so many other things, plus all the trauma, right, that needs to get fixed. It's so helpful you're bringing your kind of entrepreneurial brain to fix the problem. (laughs) And obviously, as a Filipino yourself, to be able to walk alongside people and hear what they need, often when Westerners get involved, and sadly when churches get involved, we don't bother listening and we dream up a solution and then we impose it on people without doing adequate research. Yes, actually I can tell you that most of the problems we deal with are illusions, I guess, of people who don't understand the true context. A lot of them could be foreign churches. Some of them could be very well-off Filipinos who just think they know what the problem is, but they've never really spent time to go in there and spend enough time. They can show up and give clothes and food, but that doesn't get you to know the child. And it's really hard because at one level, it's good people want to be generous, it's good people want to give, but I guess the challenge has got to be, in my head, to be child-centered rather than donor-centered. Is this making me feel good? Am I getting some glory? Am I getting to take a great selfie? Am I feeling better about myself? Rather than okay, let's listen to the needs of the child. Let's understand their environment so that we can say, okay, this isn't going to be quite as flashy or as exciting, but the impact's going to be better. Surely that's got to be our our main priority. How about you, Anton? What's going on in Kyrgyzstan? What can you see in terms of progress? I'm really glad what you just said. Seriously, like, sometimes we just focus on the, like, what, what will look better, but not what will help, really. And our work is two ways. One way is from the government, as you guessed. And it's a long journey. It's a journey of partnership and fighting sometimes, especially fighting corruption. And like we have laws that are not working. And that's part of our job. And another part is actually going out there and finding people who are living in the communities and already want to care for their communities. Mm -hmm. And we believe that it's usually local faith communities. So what we really do is we're trying to bring the expertise and programs and knowledge and whatever else we have among nonprofits, and most of them are located in the capital Mm -hmm. and connected with international partners and bring it as a resource 
stores for local faith-based communities mm-hmm. so they can choose what they need wow. to strengthen the, the community around them. Yes. So that we seem to be working very well. And another thing that is connected to your previous comment is that we try to connect donors who are willing to help, not directly to the orphanages or like to the community, but actually through people who are doing the work there. So they can actually redirect it where they see it will do the biggest impact. That's right. I mean, to be honest, you know, a wealthy donor or a significant influencer might have more power to open up a relationship with government Mm. than smaller NGOs like us. And it would be more helpful if they gave that kind of introduction and networking help, which they're great at, and the financial. I mean, the financial is helpful in the right way, but that kind of stuff can be really helpful. And again, it's listening to the NGO, listening to the context of what can be done. I think there's a lot of Christian charities who are very nervous about working with the government. They're almost anti-government at all. They want the government to keep their hands off of everything, and so we'll just work around the government. But globally, normally, the government is the corporate parent of the children in the care system. They have the ultimate responsibility. And therefore, they have an ambition, or they should have an ambition, that they want what's best for their citizens. They want the children to flourish. They want it to be cheap and effective. And if we can come alongside and say, look, we actually want some of the same things. Is there a way that we can partner? In our context in the UK, we're in a more secularised situation than many parts of the world. And there can be a bit of suspicion about faith communities coming to help because they think that we're just going to try and brainwash the children like the (laughs) Soviet bloc we're trying to do with children in the care system. They think that's what we're going to do. And to be honest, sometimes that does look like what Christians want to do. We want the kids to be away from their parents so we have unfettered access to helping them discover the Christian faith. So there's some suspicion there, but there's also suspicion back from the church. So if If we can begin to broker a better relationship, what we found in the UK is if we can show we've got a solution to the problem that they have, then, well, they come to us. And they kind of don't care about our ideology because they care about solutions. So if that worked as a bridge for us, I imagine it might be helpful in other places. And in terms of, let's talk about faith communities just for a minute, and then I know we've got to run. What are some of the challenges you're facing in terms of activating the faith community on these issues? Why aren't every church in the world reading the same bits of the Bible that you guys find obvious about caring for the orphan and the widow and the vulnerable? What do you think some of the blocks are in your context for the church stepping up and playing its role. I'm going to get controversial after this. So the church of the seven major sectors that I've been working with is by far the most difficult to mobilize. That's what the other sectors are, just so we've got context. Sure. So let me give you an acrostic. You have the letters A to G. It's the Seven Mountains of Influence by Dr. Mark Belisles. A is for arts and media. B is for business. C is for church and nonprofit. D is for doctors. E is for education, F is for family, and G is for government. I heard you say earlier that you're planning to buy a mountain as a business, but hopefully as some sort of blessing. Are you going to buy seven mountains eventually? Is that the plan? That's what I'd love to do. (laughs) (laughs) And bring some champions in every mountain, quite literally, right? Yeah. So why is the church the hardest of those communities to work with? You know, I think there are a couple of reasons. Number one, tragically, we looked at some research from Barna and found out that 70% of our pastors are not in good shape. And that's primarily because they're overworked, underpaid, they're beaten up by their church members. They spend 70% of their time counseling the same people who are criticizing them. And it creates trust issues, loneliness, and so on and so forth. And they're usually the ones doing everything. They're running everything. And 
So they get criticized for everything too. So the moment you tell them to give their lives to a child or find somebody to do that, they don't take it very well. They're maxed out already. There's so many systems that need changing. If we can better support pastors, maybe they'll be in better shape to be able to receive the challenge? Yes, I think that's one major issue. The second major issue that I've seen is that the church has become comfortable serving itself. Pastors tell us they can't do orphan care because they're serving the people inside the church. And the people inside the church say, yeah, we're busy with Sunday school and all these other administrative stuff. And they're like, if you want, we can add orphan care as another program that can be number 101, which never gets us anywhere. No, you're right. So it's not just the pastors that are to blame. We've created a kind of consumer culture within church. So church members expect the pastors to be providing therapeutic support to them. They almost see that as their primary role of the pastor. And the pastor might have a very different vision about what he or she is supposed to be doing, but the demands of the congregation. So it's a really toxic mess that we've kind of developed. What are you finding, Anton? Well, the issues are very similar, but I would like to share a little bit how we approach them so in terms of like pastors being all almost burned out right what we try to do from the very first meeting is to say like we are not trying to put it on your shoulders (laughs) again so we're like saying tell us who is in your church the most concerned about this area right can he be the contact person between you and me and then we also try not to push our agenda but other ask questions like what are the needs Mm -hmm. in the community and like if you let them talk enough you find out finally that there either will be an orphanage or a crisis family around or there will be crisis families within the church, mm-hmm. at least in our context. So most of the time we could start from their need, not our agenda, mm-hmm. and then connect it together. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to the congregation being too comfortable, and we see that a lot, especially in more like capital region church, And we try to expose them to the situation slowly, right? So we first invite them to just start visiting orphanages, Mm -hmm. to just do like maybe a little bit of mentoring, hear out a few stories, do the prayer Sunday. You cannot really like throw them into the boiling pot, (laughs) but you can put them in the cold water and start heating it up, right? (laughs) Man, that's good. That's great. There's a classic parable about how to boil a frog, right? So I like that you're giving people a taste. And I think you're right. In many contexts, people have stigmatized vulnerable children they only see the problems they can see potential criminalization gang members drug abuse whatever but when you can break down the barriers and allow someone to meet another person i love the mentoring idea it's great and then suddenly someone's imagination is enlarged to think actually you know what i might be able to do a bit more here maybe fostering adoption is an option for me that's a really really clever strategy you want to say some more robin yeah on our end i completely agree with the approach of anton what we did on our end was once we realized what the issues were with the pastors we told them right away we want to serve you because we understand that you are advocates they asked us what can you do we said we can equip you so we said we have fatherhood material which will help prevent orphanhood because if we have thriving fathers then we won't have the father less so we did that and then we offered to train the pastors their congregations Mm. we started with the basics of helping them build a vision Mm. have tools to be fathers but after that we went deeper and into father wounds and we spent time with that so almost trying to take some of that pastoral burden off them early intervention better a strong marriage and a strong family then later on down the track having to deal with all the pastoral issues really really helpful friends it's been really exciting thank you so much for your time look forward to seeing you again soon thanks 
I love both Anton and Robbie's passion. I love the way that Robbie feels particularly called to stir up and equip pastors to build thriving fathers who can then combat fatherlessness. What a great vision. And similarly with Anton, worried about those kind of burnt out pastors who've got passionate about this issue, but then kind of run out of energy. What is it going to take for you and I to play our role from the resources that we've got in order to make an impact for these most vulnerable of children? One first step that you can take is going to the homecomingproject.org website and joining our learning journey and making sure that you're as skilled as you can be to fight advocate speak up on behalf of the vulnerable children that are in orphanages around the world tune in to the next episode of the mind shift podcast you're gonna love it